0: Chapter Seventeen of the Short Line War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Short Line War by Merwin Webster. Chapter Seventeen. In the Dark. After leaving Brushingham, Harvey and his crew merely duplicated the enemy's performance of the afternoon. The C and S C employees were thrown out before they had become thoroughly settled, and with each new capture. Messages flew back to Mattison at Manchester, giving him and Jim Weeks a detailed account of the progress of the train. The greatest care was exercised to keep news of the train from Truesdale. Wherever there was a possibility of the ejected men reaching a telephone, they were actually taken in custody and placed under guard. The operators were instructed to answer all messages from the Truesdale dispatcher as intelligently as possible, in order to continue the deception. It was a long, hard ride. Harvey was called upon constantly to exercise ingenuity in the handling of his forces, and though Mallory was of great assistance, the strain of responsibility rested upon Harvey. He was tired when he started, but as the night wore on toward morning, nothing but his sound nerves kept him on his feet. At 2.30 o'clock, they were within twenty miles of Truesdale, and Harvey and Mallory were both in the engine, anxiously looking for obstructions. From Madison's dispatches, they knew that reinforcements were flying down over an open road, but the collecting of a second force had taken time, and it was nearly midnight before the second train was on its way, a hundred and sixty-five miles from Harvey's present location. Nearly all Harvey's men had been dropped along the line, and he was in no position for a conflict, particularly as he had no knowledge of the enemy's location or preparedness. Mallory was for pausing until the other train should reach them, probably about daylight. He argued that they had nothing to gain and everything to lose. Harvey, undecided, referred to his map, spreading it out on the fireman's bench, while Mallory lighted matches and held them over the paper. Harvey ran his finger down the line to Sawyerville. "'Just north Sawyerville Station,' he said, "'there is a curve and a deep cut. "'I am inclined to think that if they try to block the road, "'they'll do it there. "'The quarries are right at hand, "'and all they need to do is to roll a few rocks down.' "'Do you think they would try that?' asked Mallory. "'It would block them worse than it would us.' "'I don't know about that, "'but I'll feel a lot easier when we're through that cut "'with open country between us and Truesdale.' "'Run slow, Donahue, and put out your headlight. "'Mallory, you see that the train is perfectly dark. "'We might as well try a little bluffing, even if we do strike them. "'They won't know but what we've got five hundred men aboard, "'and the others will reach us before they find it out.' "'Mallory clambered over the coal in the tender, "'while the fireman crawled out on the running board "'and extinguished the headlight. "'The night was very dark, and John leaned out of the cab window,' his left hand gripping the throttle lever. The fireman was badly in need of sleep and showed a tendency to grumble in a half-incoherent way, but John was as silent as at the start. To Harvey, who even in the excitement was afraid to sit down for fear of falling asleep, the engineer was a marvel in his machine-like self-control. Slowly the line of empty cars rolled along. John's eyes were glued to the track in front, "'which to Harvey seemed a constantly resolving confusion of shadows. "'The tall grey telegraph poles crept by with monotonous regularity "'until Harvey turned away and looked out at the dim meadows on the left, "'over which was spread a ghostly film of mist. "'There's the cut,' said John. "'Harvey looked forward, but could see nothing. "'John, however, gradually slackened speed until they were barely moving.' "'Mallory appeared on the tender and came over the coal to the apron, "'where he stood, leaning out with one arm around the cab doorpost. "'The fireman heaped a shovel with coal, "'and staggering wearily into the cab, "'he knocked open the door of the firebox, "'from which a dull glow tempered the darkness. "'Harvey seated himself on the fireman's seat, "'holding himself stiffly erect, "'and trying to distinguish the track before. "'John slowly brought the train to a stop.' What is it? asked Harvey. See anything ahead? No, we're about two hundred yards from the curve. Harvey turned to Mallory. We'd better throw out a few men ahead, Mallory, to see that the track is clear. Haven't got many left. Not more than half a dozen altogether. Harvey stepped down and stretched his tired limbs. I'll go myself, he said. Call one of your men up here. Mallory climbed back on the tender and whistled. "'A man who had been sitting on the steps of the first car came forward. "'You wait here, Donahue,' said Harvey. "'If everything is all right, I'll come back.' "'He struck a match and looked at his watch. "'We've been taking time enough. "'It's 3.15 now. "'I'll walk along the top of the cut on the left-hand side, "'and you,' to the detective, "'you take the other side. "'Keep within easy hail.' "'He paused abruptly.' Through the crisp night air came the roll and snort of an engine. There was a long silence in the cab. "'She's running slow,' said John at length. Harvey stood breaking the match into bits. The noise of the other train came slowly nearer, but so slowly that all listened breathlessly. After a little, they could hear the rumbling of an exhaust, and John muttered, "'She's stopped.' "'We'd better wait,' said Mallory. "'It's more than likely that they have another gang ready for us. "'They probably will be coming this way before long.' "'Harvey stepped up to the fireman's seat again "'and fixed his eyes on the black cut ahead. "'It was still dark, but he could not distinguish the deep shadow "'which marked the spot where the track bent sharply to the left "'between its rock walls. "'For some time all were silent, "'listening to the noise of the other engine.' John sat on his bench, which he had not left for hours, ready either for going forward or for backing, as the circumstances should dictate. Mallory moved to the step and swung out as before, watching and listening. The fireman swung his arms and shifted his feet in an effort to keep awake. Occasionally they could hear men shouting. Then there would be no sound save the subdued hiss of steam. After a long wait, a bell rang, and John's grasp tightened, but the other engine gave only a few coughs and stopped again. The ensuing silence was broken by Harvey stepping to the tender and beckoning to the detective, who had been sitting on the coal. "'All right,' said Harvey. "'We'll go ahead and see what they're up to. You take the right bank and keep close to the edge, where I can talk to you if necessary.' He swung out of the cab and began laboriously to climb up the seamed sloping rock which reached a man's height above the cab roof, excepting the occasional cracks and jagged projections. There was no foothold, and it was at the expense of cut and scraped hands that he scrambled up the soft limestone and reached the top. He sat for a moment on the ground to recover his breath and to pull himself together. The detective was standing on the opposite bank and Harvey rose and stumbled forward. They crept along, climbing fences and tripping through underbrush. As they rounded the curve, the ground began to slope away, and soon they could see the headlight of an engine. Behind it, at the Sawyerville platform, stretched a train of lighted cars. Harvey and the detective had been talking across the cut, but now, for the sake of caution, they went on in silence. Harvey slipped around a farmyard that backed up to the track, and struck out into the woods that lie north of Sawyerville, almost up to the station and its lonely cluster of houses. Stepping quietly along a bridle path, he soon came within earshot of the station. Little knots of men stood on the platform talking excitedly. The new station agent and operator was running about in his shirt sleeves with his hand full of papers. Within the cars were crowds of men. Harvey estimated that there were several hundred. Standing near the engine, the center of a small group, was a large man whom Harvey thought was McNally. But he could not be certain at that distance and in the uncertain light of flickering station lamps. Harvey's sporting blood was up, and with entire forgetfulness of his exhaustion, he crept slowly forward, worming through the brush and long grass behind a snake fence. Slowly he progressed until only a muddy road intervened between him and the north end of the platform. Taking advantage of a noisy blow off from the engine, he piled some brush up in front of him and stretched out at full length with his chin on his arm, viewing the scene through the opening between the two lowest rails of the fence. Now he could easily recognize McNally, and without being able to distinguish words, could even hear him talking. "'Suddenly McNally stepped out from the group and called down the platform. "'Blake, are Wilkins and the boys back yet?' "'The reply was lost to Harvey, but McNally shouted, "'If they aren't here in five minutes, go ahead.' "'That told Harvey just what he wanted to know, "'and slowly turning he began crawling back. "'But before he had gone very far, "'he heard a sound which suggested possibilities. "'It was the wheezing of his own engine at the other end of the curve.' Now that he stopped to think, he realized that it must have been perfectly audible to McNally's party. From this it was naturally to be inferred that the boys had been sent out on a mission similar to his own. It occurred to him that he and they might have passed, and that the repassing might not so easily be accomplished. He increased his efforts and soon was deep enough in the woods to get to his feet and run." When he drew near the farmhouse, he took a detour and passed it with fifty yards to spare. He could not afford to rouse any dogs. He was getting into the open when three or four men appeared directly in front of him, walking slowly from a strip of woods toward the track. Harvey dug his heel into the ground and dodged back, but the men saw him and, without a word, started in pursuit. The chase was not a long one. Harvey was completely hemmed in, and, as exhausted as he was and spent with running, he was soon overhauled. He tried to call out, but one of the men gripped his mouth. Mallory, as soon as Harvey was out of sight, settled down to await his return with more or less impatience. The fireman leaned against the forward end of the tender, and promptly fell asleep. But John waked him with a growl, whereupon the exhausted man stood erect, "'struggling to bring his rebellious nerves under control. "'As the minutes slipped by, John's eyes shifted from track to bank "'and back to the cut again. "'The clouds that lingered from the afternoon rain "'hid every star save one near the horizon, "'which struggled to announce the coming dawn. Ten minutes passed, and fifteen. "'Then came the warning bell of the other locomotive,' "'followed by a quick succession of puffs "'as the big drivers gripped the rails. "'John leaned far out the window "'and scanned the banks of the cut. "'No one was in sight. "'He ducked in and seized the throttle lever. "'Hold on,' said Mallory. "'Are they coming this way?' "'Yes.' "'Mallory seized his arm. "'Back up, then. We can't meet them.' "'John jerked his elbow from Mallory's grasp "'and opened the throttle.' Are you crazy, man? Mallory shouted. Stop her. You'll kill us. John opened her a little wider. For an instant, Mallory looked at him in wonder. Then he sprang forward and jammed the lever close to the boiler. Reverse, he ordered. For reply, John turned on Mallory and crowded him back. Weak-nerved from the long strain, suffering for lack of sleep, the two men broke down for the moment and struggled about the cab. The fireman stumbled back against the boiler with a dazed face, but after a moment he recovered and rushed between the two men. "'This ain't right,' he screamed. "'If you two fight, we're ditched!' As he spoke, the detective who had gone with Harvey came slipping and tumbling down the cut and clambered aboard the engine. John and Mallory fell back against the opposite benches and glared at each other. John suddenly reached for the throttle. "'Wait a minute,' gasped Mallory. She's stopped. Half reluctantly, John listened. Sure enough, the other train had paused, evidently just around the curve. The man's right, Mallory went on. We haven't got any business scrapping. We've got to pull together. Now tell me what you were trying to do. John looked out ahead before he replied. I ain't going to leave mister West down there. Isn't Mr West back? asked the detective in a startled tone. "'He's had time enough to go clear to the station and back. "'I went pretty near to it myself. "'They've got a train full of men. "'It looks like business.' "'Hear that, Donahue?' said Mallory. "'What do you think we can do against a gang like that?' "'That don't make no difference. "'Mr. Madison says, "'Hold the line if you lose an inch in doing it, "'and I'm going to hold it.' "'But stop to think, man. "'There isn't a possible chance of holding it.' "'We'll do more good by dodging back "'and keeping them guessing until the relief comes. "'As it stands now, we're perfectly helpless.' "'Now look here,' said John. "'You go back and fetch every man you got.' "'What are you up to?' "'No difference what I'm up to. "'You fetch your men.' "'Mallory looked sharply at John, "'then he motioned to the detective, "'who dropped to the ground and hurried back. "'What's your plan?' Mallory asked again. But John shook his head and watched the cut. In a moment, the detective reappeared, followed by five others. All six came, crowding upon the apron. Without leaving his seat, John gave his orders. "'Get on the tender as high as you can, and when we go at em, yell like hell!' With startled, wondering faces, the men clambered back. Mallory among them, taking positions on the tank and on what was left of the coal, From around the curve, another succession of puffs drew John's eyes to the front, and his grip tightened. Hold on back there, he called, and don't yell till I holler. Fire up, Billy. Billy fired up and the engine moved slowly forward. She crept cautiously toward the curve, foot by foot. On the rock wall, dead ahead, a yellow light flashed, and then crept around toward them. John waited until it was almost full in his eyes. "'Whistle, Billy,' he said. The hoarse whistle shrieked, and the other engine seemed to start, then hesitate. "'Now,' said John, without looking around, and he let out a tremendous yell of, "'Adam, boys!' The men on the tender promptly raised an uproar. The fireman shouted as he jerked the whistle cord, and John sat with one eye on the indicator, the other on the approaching headlight." his bass voice all the while roaring out a fiery challenge not unmixed with profanity. The engineer of McNally's special had received no orders to sacrifice his engine, and had no desire to sacrifice himself. He wavered, stopped, then tried to back, but John let out another notch, and rammed his bullnose into and through the other's pilot with such force that both locomotives left the track. End of chapter seventeen